GEMCAST. Today I have a special guest, Tony Rosen, who is an emergency physician up in New York at Cornell, and we're going to be talking about elder abuse. And before you switch this off and go listen to some happy radio station, I know that abuse is a really difficult topic to contend with, especially child abuse, but really any type of abuse. It's painful to see, it's painful to think about, it's painful to hear about, but it's a really important topic. We as emergency physicians are uniquely positioned to identify victims of abuse who may fall through the cracks and not be found by any other providers. So, Tony, I really have so much respect for the fact that you have devoted your career thus far to researching it, writing about it, educating others about it, because it really is a challenging topic. So welcome to GEMCAST. Well, thank you, Christina. I really appreciate it, and I appreciate being here. And I couldn't agree with you more that as ER doctors, I know it already feels like we have a lot of other non-medical things to contend with. And this might seem to listeners like just another one, but I think when we get into it, we'll find that elder abuse is really something very, very important. And if we identify this, we can have a profound effect on the lives of our most vulnerable patients. And so I really appreciate you inviting me to talk to you about this. Well, let's start off with defining our terms. How do you define elder abuse? Well, it's actually taken a while for the field to come up with a definition that everyone's comfortable with. But I'll tell you how the field defines elder abuse now. We define it as action or negligence against a vulnerable older adult that either causes harm or the risk of harm, either first committed by a person in a relationship with an expectation of trust, or when the older adult is targeted based on age or disability. And this mistreatment may take several forms. It may include physical abuse, sexual abuse, neglect, psychological abuse, or even financial exploitation. And many victims suffer from multiple types of abuse at the same time. How common is this problem in terms of population-wide? How many people, elders, are victims of some sort of elder abuse? Whenever I discuss this topic, I find that it's much more common than people think. In fact, believe it or not, research suggests that 5 to 10% of community-dwelling older adults are victimized each year. That means that many of us see them each week in our clinical practice. In fact, also, we think that this is more common in nursing homes than in community-dwelling older adults, though actually the perpetrators are not who you might think. They're not typically staff, but rather other nursing home residents. And recent research suggests that more than 20% of nursing home residents suffer from this type of mistreatment each month. First of all, the number overall of 5 to 10% of community-dwelling older adults, I certainly have not diagnosed that percentage of older patients that I've seen in the ED with some sort of abuse. There have been a handful, a small handful, that I've reported and tried to act on, but definitely not that number. If there's one thing that I hope that we all take from this research, it's that we're missing it. As ER doctors, most of the cases of elder abuse that we see are coming into our emergency departments with either a fracture or a little bit of dehydration, and we're treating them for their medical problem, and we're unfortunately completely missing this abuse or neglect. You mentioned the assaults or violence from other nursing home residents, which of course is a huge 
problem among elderly demented patients that we see they're often sent to us from their facility because they become too agitated. But I hadn't really made that connection in terms of that being an elder abuse form. But what are the most common types of elder abuse that we see? Great question. In fact, psychological abuse, neglect, and financial exploitation are more common, and physical abuse and sexual abuse are thankfully less common, but unfortunately they do occur, and much more commonly than we think. And what are the medical consequences of elder abuse? Well, this is again one of the things that I think is an important thing to recognize is that elder abuse is a very morbid and even mortal condition. It turns out that victims of elder abuse have a three times greater mortality than those who who are not victims, and there's also increased morbidity, including higher rates of depression, hospitalization, nursing home placement, and emergency department visits. <laughs> there we go. In addition, the medical costs associated with elder abuse are likely many billions of dollars annually. So there are not only medical consequences, but consequences to the medical and healthcare system. So we see a lot of older patients in our emergency departments. Which patients, if we were going to do some sort of screening or look more closely for signs or symptoms of abuse, which patients are at greatest risk? It's a great question, and it's something, unfortunately, that we don't know as much about as we'd like. The research that exists is conflicting, and we haven't yet clearly defined risk factors. But we do think that we know a couple of things. First, cognitively impaired older adults are likely at much greater risk for these problems. Unfortunately, I know as an emergency department physician myself that those are folks that are harder to assess for this problem, but they are likely at greater risk. We also think that poor physical health, poor mental health, low income or low socioeconomic status, social isolation and low social support, history of family violence, previous traumatic event exposure, and substance abuse all may increase risk. And so these are the patients that you should think about evaluating more closely for this problem. In cases of abuse or neglect in elders, who are the the typical abusers? We don't know as much as we'd like, but it's most commonly another family member, perhaps a spouse, a boyfriend or girlfriend, or even an adult child, but also it may be a paid caregiver. And we have to think when we think about elder abuse that sometimes a spouse might have been physically abusive to their husband or wife for years. And there's no magic change when someone becomes 60 years old that it becomes elder abuse. This may just be domestic violence grown old. However, also there are spouses where one or the other might change clinically and might have more care needs or become cognitively impaired, and that can create a dangerous situation in a relationship that hasn't been dangerous for 50 years. And we've mentioned a couple times that we don't identify it well. Do you have any sense for how often elder abuse is identified? The research that exists suggests that it is very uncommonly. In fact, the most recent research suggests that as few as one in 24 cases is reported to the authorities. And unfortunately, as doctors, we can recognize that most of the morbidity and mortality is because of the delay in recognition and reporting. Why do we as emergency physicians need to be aware of this and have a focus on it? Well, I'm glad you asked. From my perspective, look, I get it. The ER is already a place where we do lots and lots and lots of things, and we're already very, very, very busy. But we think that for a socially isolated older adult who is being victimized, a visit to a medical provider might be the only time they leave their house 
at all. And an ED visit might provide a unique opportunity to identify this elder abuse. Available evidence suggests that victims are less likely to go to a primary care provider and more likely to present to the emergency department. Further, the potential for identifying it in the ED might be higher because these visits are unplanned. Perpetrators and victims have no time to align their histories or suppress evidence of abuse. Also, despite our best efforts, most ED visits, at least in my ED, I can't speak for you, Christina, but most ED visits in my ED are prolonged. So in our ED, there's going to be the opportunity for lots of pairs of eyes to be on a patient for a prolonged period of time. And just like for other types of violence, this can be a benefit because the tech might notice something or the social worker might notice something or even the clerk might notice something. And so from our perspective, this prolonged nature of the ED visit provides a lot of opportunity to assess the patient and mm-hmm. to identify these admittedly subtle and difficult to identify clues. You know, that's actually a good point I hadn't thought of, that if they go to a clinic visit, they are probably not gowned. They're probably still in their clothes, so you might not see some signs of abuse. And those clinic visits are usually pretty quick, 15 to 25 minutes, whereas in the ED, like you said, we have a longer time and usually, hopefully, they're gowned and we do a more thorough exam. Exactly. And we can talk a little bit more about that later, but I couldn't agree more. And don't forget that the ED plays a central role in the assessment and the identification of child abuse and intimate partner violence. This is something that we're good at, and it's something that we're used to doing for other types of family violence. Unfortunately, however, despite this, we almost never recognize it, and we almost never report it. And that's due to several factors probably, Christina, but some of them are Many of us are not very well trained in identifying the signs of abuse, and so for that, I really thank you for inviting me to GEMcast. Also, we're not sure about what to do if we identify it, and we doubt the effectiveness of interventions, and we're not really that enthusiastic about being involved in the legal system as ER docs. So as a result, even though this is an opportunity, I'm afraid that right now it's an opportunity that very few of us take and very few of us take, take frequently. So how could we, as ER physicians, if we want to do some sort of screening for elder abuse, what could we do? It turns out, unfortunately, that we're at the very beginning of that as well. Though several tools to screen for elder abuse have been described in the literature, none of these have actually been specifically designed for the ED or effectively tested in the ED. That's the bad news. The good news is There is research ongoing now, though if you invite me back to GEMcast in a couple of years, hopefully I'll have better news for you. But many of us that work in the field believe that an accurate and brief screening tool to assess older adults would be valuable, very valuable. But we're not even sure yet what it would look like or whether it's best to screen at triage or later in the ED visit. So in the land of we're not quite sure yet, I can tell you a little bit about one tool that many of us are familiar with and that we can add to the show notes uh, as well, which is the Elder Abuse Suspicion Index, or EASI, or EC. That's a short screening instrument that is easy to use in the emergency department and has been validated for cognitively intact patients in family practice and other ambulatory care settings. And so this resource, if you wanted to screen now and wanted a screening tool, this I think might be the most appropriate, but please check back soon because we're hopeful that researchers are working on this topic. And 
before we do have a well-validated screening tool, what are some things that the physician can look for, clues in the history or physical? You know, in kids, we have these classic fracture pattern types or obviously retinal hemorrhages or a strange story like a six-week-old that rolled off a couch even though they can't roll yet. So there's these classic injury patterns that we look for in kids. Is there anything similar that we can look for either on physical exam or with the history for elders? The answer is yes. A lot of these things are not yet evidence-based, but they are, as you listen to them, very similar to what we look for in other types of family violence. So if you're concerned, and frankly, we want you to think about this as commonly as you can, historical clues include poor living conditions, according to paramedics or others, unexplained injuries, a history of frequent injuries, delay between the onset of medical illness or injury and when you seek medical attention, recurrent visits to the ER for similar injuries, doctor shopping or using multiple physicians or multiple emergency departments for care rather than one primary physician. So as you listen to those clues in the history, frankly, Christina, they probably sound very similar to what we're all taught to look for in child abuse or intimate partner violence. Also, however, there are physical findings that may suggest mistreatment, and these serve as an important reminder. One of the things that I'm sure you teach your residents, Christina, that though it may be difficult in a busy ED, a head-to-toe examination of an older adult is critical to providing optimal care for these patients. Absolutely. So for physical abuse, I think that bruising in atypical locations, like not over bony prominences or on the lateral arms, back, face, ears, or neck should raise suspicion, patterned injuries, things that look like bite marks or an injury that's consistent with the shape of a belt buckle, a fingertip, or other object, injuries or bruising around the wrists or ankles, suggesting inappropriate restraint, burns, any burn should be suggestive, but particularly stocking or glove patterns suggesting forced immersion or a cigarette pattern, which of course is very similar to what we might expect or look for in child abuse, multiple fractures or bruises of different ages, scalp hematomas or traumatic alopecia, which is a big word for describing when you see hair that's been pulled out, subconjunctival vitreous or retinal ophthalmic hemorrhages, or even intraoral soft tissue injuries. And this brings me to another important point for physical abuse and neglect. The inside of the mouth of an older adult is someplace that you should always look because that's another place that can hide some really important findings that might change the kind of care that you provide for a patient. Unfortunately, sexual abuse is also possible. Though uncommon, it occurs, and I've seen it, and I suspect that you may have seen it as well. So genital, rectal, or oral trauma, including erythema, bruising, or laceration, should be concerning. And evidence of sexually transmitted diseases in someone that is not thought to be likely to be sexually active should also be a concern. But these are both uncommon. I think that what I also really want to emphasize is neglect, which I think is something that we're going to see in the emergency department probably quite a bit more commonly than we see physical or sexual abuse. And so I want us as physicians and as ER providers to be focused on what are the things that we might find in neglect, cachexia or malnutrition, severe dehydration, which might include a sodium that's greater than 147 or 148, pressure sores or decubitus ulcers, and of course, 
pressure sores or decubitus ulcers can occur in normal appropriate care, but in the context of other things that are concerning, they should also raise a red flag. In addition, poor hygiene, an unchanged diaper, dirty or severely worn clothing, elongated toenails, or poor oral hygiene. And so again, I wanted to emphasize in these last two, elongated toenails and poor oral hygiene, just how important it is in our older adult patients in the ED to look from head to toe. And when I say toe, I include the toenails. And also, head to toe includes the inside of the mouth. I think that we can find a lot about our patients by looking in those areas. Neglect, it just encompasses so much of what we see. And one important point, I think, to make is that we see patients all the time with these poor oral, poor foot hygiene, maybe dehydration or some stage one pressure ulcers. Sometimes this can be actual intentional neglect by a family member. Other times it may be that their equally elderly spouse is just no longer able to cope with them. And so what we're trying to do as physicians when we start the process of either reporting or getting social services involved is not to bring some sort of legal consequences to a family that is struggling to manage, but rather to bring them the help that they need in order to help care for those patients. I couldn't agree with you more. There are a lot of families that are trying to prevent a patient from going into a skilled nursing facility and are doing their very best to care for their loved one at home, but sometimes they're no longer capable of doing that, Uh, particularly, as you said, if a spouse has their own medical and or cognitive issues. And so we are here to assess safety. And we are here to assess the potential for medical consequences. And so from our perspective, if we identify that the care is inadequate, what we're simply identifying is that additional steps need to be taken. So let's say we've done our thorough physical exam. We've asked some questions in the history to try to elicit how they're coping at home. Or maybe we've asked specifically if anyone has harmed them or things like that. And maybe we have a suspicion that there could be some neglect or some actual physical violence occurring. What can we do about it? What I would recommend is that we always think about doing three things. First, we're ER doctors. So we should treat the acute medical and psychological issues. And frankly, these folks often have medical and psychological issues that need emergent treatment. Second, we should focus on ensuring the patient's immediate safety. And third, we should report to the authorities. So let me sort of break those down. First, traumatic injuries and medical abnormalities, including dehydration, are common and should be stabilized and treated. Also, management of worsening chronic medical conditions may be required due to an abuser's failure to provide appropriate care. Often we see patients come in with AFib with RVR or with a CHF exacerbation because they haven't been getting their medications. In some circumstances, hospitalization may be necessary to provide extended treatment and observation for these medical problems. Second, as I said, we need to now focus on ensuring patient safety. Now, I think we're good at that as emergency physicians, but we need to recognize that this mistreatment victim might be in immediate danger. And one of our jobs is to assess whether they are. And if a victim is in immediate danger, the patient should be prevented from having any contact with a suspected abuser. 
look, I get it. This may be challenging, as in some cases, the suspected abuser is standing next to the patient, and one of the challenges in emergency medicine may be the patient's official health care proxy. But in extreme cases, this may require a security watch for the patient and even having the abuser removed from the ED and contacting law enforcement, hospital social workers, and administrators. Additionally, if these steps are necessary, then the emergency physician, in, of course, close contact with the case manager or social worker, needs to consider whether alternative living arrangements can be arranged for the patient, and if not possible, the patient may require hospital admission to ensure their safety. I like how you broke it down into the three steps in terms of treating acute medical problems, ensuring safety, and then reporting. What do we do if we're trying to intervene and the patient refuses intervention? It's a great question, and it's really a challenge. After all, if we think about it, we as a society have made a decision that an 11-year-old who says, yes, you're right, doc, I am being abused by my mom, but I want to go home, we've made a decision that that 11-year-old does not have a right to go home. We want to hold that patient for their safety in an emergency department. But when that same patient is 25 years old and says, yep, doc, I agree with you, I am being abused by my spouse or partner, but I want to go home, we essentially say, we're here 24 hours a day, here are the resources, we're open whenever you need us, but you have a right to go home. And unfortunately, with older adults, it can be much more challenging. There might be an 89-year-old who has absolutely the capacity to make that decision, and we should send them home even over our objections. However, there might be a 75-year-old with cognitive impairment who is no longer able to make that decision. And so, unfortunately, with older adults, if they refuse our intervention, we need to determine whether they have the capacity to make this decision. In some larger emergency departments, you may have the ability to get a psychiatric consultation, and that might be very helpful. But ultimately, the wishes of an older adult who has decision-making capacity and desires to return to an abusive or otherwise unsafe situation must be respected, just as we respect the decision of a victim of intimate partner violence among younger adults. If, of course, we are sending a patient home that we think is unsafe, please educate the patient about the potential for escalation in violence and abuse and provide the appropriate referral materials in close contact with your case manager or social worker. Let's say that the patient does not have any imminent threat that we can identify and they want to return home and they can be safely discharged medically. What else can we do to facilitate their care? I would emphasize two things. The first thing is we want to coordinate as much as we can for longitudinal follow-up. So contacting the patient's primary care physician discussing your concerns, and ensuring that they are going to follow up with the patient and with the family, I think can be invaluable. In addition, many of these patients have access or should have access to services for both the patient and for the caregivers, including senior centers, medical transportation services, meals on wheels, adult daycare, respite care, and even substance abuse treatment. And so from my perspective, particularly in emergency departments, 
where you have access to case managers and social workers, they can provide a critical role in at least helping to make these patients aware of these services and hopefully setting up as many of them as the patient would like. And let's say a patient does, clearly does not have capacity to make the decision to go home or they do want us to file a report. What can we do to begin the investigation process for these patients? First, I would say that as much as possible, please work closely with your social workers and case managers because, of course, they have more experience than physicians do in these areas and can help us if we have questions. However, let me give you answers which hopefully will be particularly useful to those of us that practice in settings where we don't always have as much social work and case management backup as we'd like. Reporting to the authorities typically requires contacting your local or state adult protective services. Please keep in mind, adult protective services is different than the experience that you might have with child protective services. Adult protective services don't come to the hospital. They don't investigate until a patient is discharged, and they don't initiate their investigation typically in real time. So this phone call is not going to change your management in the emergency department. Therefore, Christina, if you're concerned, and if you're concerned that a follow-up in 72 hours or a week is not going to be fast enough, or you think that a crime has been committed, please consider calling the police and getting them involved. Now, I know for child abuse, we are mandatory reporters. So if we even suspect any sort of child abuse, even if the child or obviously the parent or anybody else says, no, please don't contact the authorities, it doesn't matter. We're contacting the authorities. It's more complicated in elder adults. Can you tell us about that? Yes, it is more complicated in older adults. Most, but not all, U.S. states require mandatory reporting similar to the requirements for child abuse. However, each state is slightly different, and some states, including New York State, for example, do not have mandatory reporting. So unfortunately, I would recommend that listeners in the United States review with their own case managers or with their state's Department of Health website to find out their own mandatory reporting requirements. And those of your listeners that are from outside the United States also should check with their case managers and local authorities and health departments, because unfortunately, this isn't necessarily a standard the way our child abuse reporting standards are. Some of you, depending on where you work, you may be under mandatory reporting laws. So even if the patient declines reporting for an elder, you may be required to report. Whereas in other states, if the patient declines, then you are not required to report it. That's right, Christina. I would add one key thing, though. Typically, though you and I think of older adult as 65 and older, because that's how we think of it from most of our medical geriatric and geriatric emergency medicine stuff. In fact, in most states, because of the way the Older Americans Act is written, elder abuse is related to age 60 and older and not age 65 and older. Most of state laws are related to 60 and older, and most elder abuse mandatory reporting is related to 60 and older. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. What do you think are some next steps in terms of improving our ability to identify and intervene in elder abuse in the ED? There are many areas where research is ongoing that will hopefully have an impact on our clinical practice. First, 
improve screening tools. We'd like to have a way uh, at the front door of the ED or at the beginning of a patient's evaluation to be able to screen more effectively and quickly for elder abuse because we know it's something that's common and we know it's something that we're missing most of the time. Also, we'd like to model some of our approach for child abuse. Many folks are working on clinical prediction rules to identify injury patterns or other features of common presentations such as falls that should actually raise suspicion for elder mistreatment. After all, Christina, we see more falls in our emergency department than any other presentation for any reason. And we think that at least some of these falls are probably, in fact, not falls, but cases of of elder abuse. And what we're looking for is, are there features of the injuries or of the presentations that we can develop into a clinical prediction rule that will help ER docs to say, well, gee, you're saying it's a fall or the person that's standing next to you is saying that it's a fall, but I'm not so sure. The next thing that many of us are thinking about are multidisciplinary ED-based interventions. After all, if we're going to start screening for this more aggressively and we're going to start use clinical prediction rules to identify it, we want to be able to do something for these patients. And so we're envisioning multidisciplinary ED-based interventions to optimize care and to protect these vulnerable older adults. After all, many large emergency departments have child protection teams, and these child protection teams allow us as ER providers to register our concern or suspicion and then move on to caring for other patients while this team over sometimes hours continues to work up the patient and provide all of the additional collateral that's necessary to evaluate for child abuse. And we envision that there might be an opportunity for similar multidisciplinary teams to assist in the care of potentially vulnerable older adults. Well, Tony, thank you so much for speaking on this topic. I have certainly learned some new things and also just been made aware again of how we need to be screening for it, thinking about it more, having a high enough suspicion that we do a good exam, looking at the toenails, looking in the mouth, look at the back, so that we will identify these patients when they come in and can start to provide better resources and better follow-up and reporting when we need to. Any final thoughts or things you want to impart? Yeah, the last thing I want to say is, first, thanks again for having me. Exciting to contribute to this GEMcast, and I'm really excited that we have a way now to talk about these topics that are so important to those of us that really focus on the care of older adults in our emergency departments. But I also wanted to focus on the real potential for the team to contribute. I think a lot of us got into ER medicine because we like working in teams and we like working shoulder to shoulder with EMS folks and techs and nurses and clerks and radiologists and radiology techs. And I think that developing a team-based approach to elder abuse detection is a really important potential step forward. Anyone that sees something that concerns them or notices something that thinks they need additional workup should be empowered and encouraged to speak up. As I mentioned, the ER visit has a lot of eyes on a patient, and I think it's important that we think about empowering all members of the ED team to watch for clues. EMS, who sees patients in their home, triage providers, nurses, radiologists, radiology techs, social workers, and case managers, each one of these professionals has the opportunity to contribute to elder abuse detection. And so I think that as physicians, we want to empower them and we want to make sure that we are very receptive if they come to us with any kind of concern in this area. 
So thanks again for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Tony. I'm going to briefly summarize some of the highlights of what Tony talked about. The prevalence of elder abuse is about 5 to 10% of community-dwelling older adults each year. It's thought that the numbers are higher in patients who are in skilled nursing facilities or assisted living facilities, but the numbers are very difficult to get. The mortality is three times greater in patients who are experiencing elder abuse. The most common type of elder abuse is neglect. Sometimes this can be intentional. Other times it is simply because the patient's family or caregiver lacks the resources to care for the patient. Other times it can be physical or sexual or financial. Unfortunately, only about 1 in 24 cases of elder abuse is reported to the authorities. There are some ways to screen for elder abuse, and Tony mentioned the Elder Abuse Suspicion Index, but there's nothing really that's ready for prime time. Things that you can look for in your history, sometimes EMS will come in and say, wow, their living conditions were really poor. Listen to that as it may be a clue to some underlying neglect or lack of resources. Other things like past history of frequent injuries, unexplained injuries, frequent ED visits or visits to multiple EDs, and then physical exam findings. I think this was a really great section that he brought up. So looking for bruising, particularly in atypical locations, such as on the back, the neck, the wrists or ankles to suggest restraint, or where I've seen it one time, uh, the upper arms where someone had been grabbed and there were finger mark shaped bruises. Other things like obviously bite injuries or burns would raise suspicion, multiple fractures, and this is difficult of course because older adults do tend to have more frequent falls and injury patterns related to osteoporosis. And then also things like scalp hematomas, traumatic alopecia, retinal or subconjunctival hemorrhages, and then intraoral soft tissue injuries. And he also mentioned looking for signs of sexual abuse. The neglect category was the most interesting to me because that overlaps so much with non-neglect related medical concerns. Things like cachexia or malnutrition, dehydration, pressure sores, poor hygiene, adult diapers that look like they haven't been changed for a long time, elongated toenails, or poor oral hygiene. As Tony laid out, the things that we can do when we suspect abuse or neglect are, first of all, treat the acute medical or psychological illness. Second, ensure the patient is safe if they are going back to their living situation. And third, report to the authorities or the adult protective services. And again, it's important to look up for your state what your reporting requirements are, particularly if you have a cognitively intact older adult who does not want the abuse to be reported you need to know what your obligations and responsibilities are for your state. Hopefully you have learned some new information about elder abuse that you can take to your workplace and use on your next shift. As always, thank you for listening. You can reach me on Twitter. The handle is at gempodcast and the website is gempodcast.com. Feel free to leave a comment or suggestion or resource that you have found helpful. Thanks.